<laughs> I'm ready. I don't even know how we're gonna do this. This is Elisa. <laughs> this is Kyle. I mean, you don't have to sing it. <laughs> Welcome to PCR. <laughs> Welcome to PCR. Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Drake. And I'm Elisa White. And this is the first episode of PCR, the podcast of Yukon Research. This is a new podcast that will attempt to shed light on the wide variety of amazing and innovative research that is going on here in stores at the University of Connecticut. So first, we'd like to introduce ourselves, the research that we do, and how we got here. So I just recently graduated from Yukon with a Bachelor's in Physiology and Neurobiology, or PNB, this past May. And I'll be a graduate student here at UConn starting this fall to pursue my PhD in PNB also. As for me, I'm a senior undergrad who will be graduating this coming December to also pursue my PhD in the same PNB lab as Elisa. However, we both come from very different backgrounds. I was a pre-med student all throughout high school in the first two years of college, but upon joining the Canadia lab in the beginning of my sophomore year to bolster my medical school resume, I ended up finding a passion for doing research and debated whether I truly wanted to go to medical school. Whereas I was always fascinated by my science courses, especially those concerning biology and the brain, but I didn't know exactly where this could take me career-wise. I knew I didn't want to go to medical school, but other than that, I kept my options open. And when I took a research-intensive class in the spring semester of my junior year of undergrad, I just fell in love with research and knew that that was what I wanted to do. So while we had these two very distinct backgrounds, we both ended up in the same spot, wanting to do research and pursue a PhD. And to be honest, doing research here at UConn has helped unearth a lot of great career options that I didn't know existed, as well as exposing us to some of the riveting research going on here at UConn just within the PMB department. So this led us to ask, what other interesting projects are professors and labs working on around campus that we don't even know about? Hence, we started this podcast, PCR, to hopefully put the spotlight on research going on around campus and talk to the professors themselves about the work that they do. In the coming episodes, we'll be joined by different professors across different disciplines here at the university to talk to them about what they do, why they do it, and how they got involved in research. In addition to this, we want this to be a platform that helps students get involved in research, not only by sharing the research other professors do, but also informing students how to get involved, how to find the right lab, and what to really expect when joining a research lab. And we really want this to be an open conversation within the stores community. So if you have any questions or suggestions for us, we encourage our listeners to reach out to us by emailing us at yukon.pcr at gmail.com. But for the first episode, we thought it'd be fitting to talk about the research that we do. So currently, we both do research in the Kanadia Lab in the Department of Physiology and Neurobiology under Dr. Rahul Kanadia. Our lab primarily is interested in neurodevelopment, with a focus on the processing of RNA transcripts through an understudied niche mechanism termed minor splicing. But in order to talk about minor splicing, we need to first provide some foundational background information. So Kyle, tell us what a gene is. Well, a gene is a segment of DNA that encodes for a functional unit, whether that be proteins or functional RNAs. In order for these functional units to be properly made, the gene must first be expressed. Expression of a gene refers to it being read and transcribed into an RNA transcript, which then undergoes further modifications, such as additions to both ends to increase stability and localization, as well as splicing. Since our lab works with the machinery involved in splicing, why don't you explain this to us, Elisa? So splicing is the process by which non-coding sequences, referred to as introns, are cut out, while the remaining coding sequences, termed exons, are joined together. Now the process of splicing is carried out by two molecular machineries, the major spliceosome and the minor spliceosome. The major spliceosome is comprised of five small nuclear RNAs, or snRNAs. 
U1, U2, U4, U5, and U6, and its associated proteins, while the minor spliceosome is comprised of four analogous snRNAs, U11, U12, U4 ATAC, U6 ATAC, and U5, which is shared between the two machineries. Now, as its name suggests, the major spliceosome is responsible for the splicing of the majority of introns, while the minor spliceosome is only responsible for the splicing of less than 0.5% of all introns. So Kyle, if the minor spliceosome is responsible for the splicing of such a small subset of introns, what is its biological significance, and why is this evolutionarily conserved? Time and time again, we see the importance of the minor spliceosome resonate itself in development, most predominantly neurodevelopment. And the disease that best illustrates the importance of the minor spliceosome is MOPD1, microcephalic osteodysplastic primordial dwarfism type 1. That's a mouthful, so let's break it down. Microcephalic refers to microcephaly, or a small brain, specifically a small cortex. Osteodysplastic refers to osteodysplasia, or the malformation of bone. And lastly, primordial dwarfism refers to stunted, underdeveloped limbs. So altogether, patients with MOPD1 have small brains and growth retardation, both of which lead to death within the first few years of life. The interesting thing is that all patients have a mutation in the gene that encodes for U4ATAC, one of the five components of the minor spliceosome that we discussed earlier. So the question that our PI initially investigated was whether the loss of U4ATAC, or the entire minor spliceosome, was responsible for causing these severe symptoms. In order to do this, the Kanadia lab generated a U11 conditional knockout mouse, which removes U11 snRNA, and effectively inactivates the minor spliceosome, independent of U4ATAC. And as MOPD1 shows a tissue-specific bias affecting the nervous system in the limbs, in addition to us coming to the lab in a time where we have a functional U11 conditional knockout mouse, we have the ability to remove U11 and therefore minor splicing and specific cell types of interest. So for my current project, I'm investigating the effect of the removal of U11 in the NKX 2.1 lineage cells of the developing brain. Now this cell lineage gives rise to three main cell populations, the inhibitory neurons of the cortex, the basal ganglia, and the hypothalamus. So if these populations of cells lose minor splicing, we predict one of two things will happen. One, that the mouse may not even survive, as these cell types are essential for motor coordination and all homeostatic maintenance within the organism or two, that the mouse will survive and be completely unaffected. So what did you see? Upon birth, we observed that the mice with the U11 removed in the NKX 2.1 lineage cells are indistinguishable from our control mice. However, at around a week after birth, they are developmentally delayed and are much smaller than the control mice. Surprisingly though, at around five weeks of age, our mutant mice go from failing to thrive to obesity, surpassing their control littermates in weight. So the focus of my research is to determine how this removal of U11 is giving rise to this mouse that initially fails to thrive and then eventually shifts to obesity. Huh, so it goes from being the runt of the litter to super fat. That is pretty interesting. As for my project, I'm investigating removal of U11 in the PRX1 lineage cells of the developing limb. This cell lineage is specific to the proliferating mesoderm of the limb bud, which ultimately becomes the bones of the limb. Now, it turns out that U11 loss in this lineage causes severe truncation of the developing mouse forelimb with no clear structure or patterning to any of the skeletal regions, be that the humerus, radius, and ulna in hand. However, the hindlimb develops all skeletal structures just in a smaller size. Now, this apparent discrepancy is what my graduate school studies will revolve around, but since both of us are just gaining momentum in these projects, we currently do not have much data to report besides the major phenotypes that we have observed so far. 
So if any of you guys are interested in the work that we do, we encourage you to ask us questions and talk to us since we only gave a brief crash course as to how these mechanisms work. Going forward, we hope to inform and inspire our listeners of all backgrounds, biological sciences like us, social sciences, other physical sciences, or any other discipline altogether, to get involved with not only the research going on, but becoming educated in the amazing work that is done on our campus. We are looking forward to more engaging conversations once we begin bringing guests on the show, but for now we thought it would be necessary to provide a background to who we are, what we are studying, and why we're qualified to talk to you all about the research at UConn and how to get involved in it. Thank you all for listening, and we truly welcome any suggestions, recommendations for professors or labs to interview, and any questions you may have. And with that... Good morning, good evening, or good night, and we hope you tune in to the next episode. <laughs>